Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 1 Kings 16. So the last time in chapter 15, we had a mixed bag of legacies, some good and some bad, and today is going to be a little bit different in that uh, none of the kings that we're going to talk about in the northern kingdom of Israel were good. There was five in a row that were pretty crummy. Uh, the Bible says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, um, and they ended up dying that way. And we have to ask ourselves too, what do we want to be known by? What do we want our legacy to be? And I've asked this question in various forms before. I mean, me personally, I don't need a street sign named after me or a town. Um, I would just like to be remembered as somebody who really had a passion for God and His Word and wanted to inspire others like my pastor inspired me. Um, that's, that's all I want. And I, wanted, I want to be looked at as somebody who had flaws, but somebody who really tried and really tried to bring people into the kingdom. Um, you know, it's, it's a simple thing and it's something if we're really being guided by the Holy Spirit, that will be what's said of us. That will be, we are in the book of life and, you know, God will welcome us that way. Uh, it's not good, work, good works versus bad. A lot of the way the world looks at it, it's, you know, if you, if you have the love of the Lord inside of you, you can't help but want others to have that as well. So hopefully, like David, we would be known as somebody who was a man or a woman after God's own heart. Now, <clears throat> so this is a little, okay, so tonight it's just a lot of bad news. <laughs> so we're going to, you know, there's no way I can really spice it up, but I'm going to try. Um, next chapter, it gets a lot better because we're introduced to Elijah the prophet. I love Elijah the prophet. And I love him too because we're not even going to talk about him tonight, but here's a guy too who, he, he, he had fear at times, he, he had failures, but, but he also did great victories. Um, just a mixed bag, but just somebody that wanted to serve the Lord, and sometimes he allowed his emotions and feelings to get the best of him. So I can't wait to be going into the next chapter. <clears throat> and this true is where, with a church that does verse-by-verse teaching, uh, you go through the difficult portions of Scripture. I mean, it would be great, and, and a lot of ministries do it talking about love this Sunday, next Sunday they're talking about encouragement, Next, so they, and you could be in a church like that for 10 or 20 years and they never get to some of the difficult portions of Scripture, but I also believe that they grow us and that's why we teach verse by verse at Calvary Chapel. So you get the good, bad, and everything in between. So we're going to jump in uh, with verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha, saying, and Jehu's a, a prophet, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust, so Basha, he's speaking to the Basha, the king of Israel. Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, who was a wicked king, and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins, surely I will take away the posterity of Basha and the posterity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Basha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields. Now, the, the rest of the acts of Basha, what he did in his might, you could say in his own strength, 
Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Basha rested with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah. Then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. And the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha and his house, because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord and provoked him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed them. This isn't in my notes because I'm very familiar with my notes, uh, but I, I feel like I need to say this. You know, when you would read about David and some of the good kings, they, they just cried out to God. They asked God for wisdom. They sought through the prophets. We're going to see five, well, the, the one king was in the last chapter, Nadab, in, cha- in chapter 15. But five kings in a row, none of them call out to God. They just do things in their own strength, in their own might, and the, the wicked just becomes compounded. So here's the legacy of Basha. The irony is that Basha fulfills the prophecy of eliminating Jeroboam's dynasty. Remember that wicked king and, and his progeny, etc. Um, so we find that Basha in chapter 15, when we covered this the last time, he ends up killing Nadab, fulfilling this prophecy about eliminating Jeroboam's dynasty. But Basha follows in King Jeroboam's, Jeroboam's footsteps, and his dynasty is also eliminated. Uh, prophet Jehu, okay, one of the many awesome prophets in the scripture, he goes up against Basha with the judgment, with a word from the Lord. And later, Jehu, we see him appear again in Second Chronicles 19, he goes up against King Jehoshaphat. Right? So, you know, we can overlook this. Oh, it's one of, one of the God's great prophets, great guy. But make no mistake, these prophets had a tough job uh, in those days. I mean, you know, the king could say, I don't like that message. Guards take his head off. And they often did. Some of the prophets were severely persecuted. Some of them were killed. So Jehu, it's great to be used by God, and I'm sure he enjoyed that relationship with God, but he also had to do difficult things. He also had to tell the hearers things that was disciplinary, and they were a lot of times hostile to that message. Um, so, you know, the, the expression, I actually looked it up, don't kill the messenger, comes largely from the days of the monarchs, where you had these autonomous rulers who... They would get a message about how the war was going or, you know, from prophet of God and they didn't like it and they could kill you if they wanted to. So, you know, it's funny how God's people over the, over the years, over the millennia, some of them had a tougher job than others. But what we do see here, and this is amazing, is this, this interaction between God's sovereignty. God is a sovereign. He's a potentate. He's a king. He's the creator of all things. His sovereignty versus man's free will. And there's this kind of, I don't want to say yin and yang because it's, it's kind of based in mysticism, but you see this, this back and forth dance between God's sovereignty and man's free will. You know, God makes things happen, but he also gives man the freedom to make choices. And we're going to get into that. And this is a conundrum for the hyper-Calvinist in that God, you see this, he raised up these kings. And you might say, well, then why didn't he just in his foresight raise up all good people? Okay. Well, maybe some good people were weak-minded, and if he raised them up, they would become evil as well. Remember that, that, that kingship position, you had all the power, you had the wealth, and it, it, it's very unwieldy for any mere man or mere woman. So what happens is God raises up people that seem to start off good, and some of them ended up well, but some of them didn't. Um, and he had expectations on those leaders. I raised you up. Now I expect you to do what a shepherd should do, or an under-shepherd of the people. 
God is the main shepherd, and we as his leaders are just under shepherds. You know, we do his, his will. But a lot of them rebelled. They did their own thing. They set a bad example. And God held them accountable for their bad example. So let's, let's remember that here. Uh, again, the hyper-Calvinist tips heavily on God's sovereignty, almost so extreme to the point where they say man doesn't have choices, God wills everything. Uh, and that, that's a problem there because then we would say that when man makes sinful decisions, God is the author of those sinful decisions. See, that's what, when you take these weird doctrines to their extreme, you have uh, inconsistencies in doctrine. Okay? So if God wills everything and we don't have choice, then the sinful choices we make are God's fault, which makes no sense. So God does raise up, but he also has expectations. I put you in this position, I expect you to do the right thing. Some did, some didn't. And the ones that didn't were held accountable. So let's keep that in mind. So we look at this and we we have questions. So I'm just going to kind of throw in some things that pertain, doctrines that pertain to what we're studying. Verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, now we're going to see this measuring rule against this one king Asa who ruled, I believe, for 41 years in the south, in the southern kingdom. So he's ruling for a long time. He's a pretty good guy. And while he's doing that, there's kings that are rising and falling in the north. And a lot of it has to do with their wickedness. God only lets them do it for so long, and then he takes them out. So verse 8, we're going to keep seeing this, this Asa in the southern kingdom, this parallel rulership. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, so somebody new comes in, he becomes king over Israel and reigned two years in Tirzah. Now his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. It's kind of like a military coup. As he was in Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Tirzah. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Then it came to pass when he, be, he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all the household of Basha. He did not leave him one male, neither of his kinsmen nor of his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Eli his son, which, by which they sinned and by which they had made Israel sin in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Again, we're seeing a lot of concept in this. It's, it's kind of depressing, but there's really some really good stuff that we could pull out of it. So God holds us accountable for our own sin. But if you notice that the kings of Israel caused Israel to sin, so can the average peasant say, it's not my fault, the king made me sin? No. <laughs> you still have to stand accountable for your sins. However, that position of leadership, people would watch the example and they say, well, he's doing it. I can get away with it. And this is the bane of leadership. A lot of people want to be leaders, but then when you get into this position, everybody's watching you. And you know what? As the Apostle Paul says, I'd rather love a person to not show them something that would make them stumble than to have that liberty in Christ. He kind of weighed the two things out. So it's, it's actually very fascinating. So sometimes in leadership, especially in a spiritual or quasi-spiritual um, leadership position, we, we have to be careful because people are watching us, you know, and, and they're going to they find those flaws and it could stumble them. So here the kings just didn't care. They did awful things. They set up uh, towers of idolatry, hills of idolatry, and not only did they sin, but they caused the people to sin, but even when the people sinned, they were held accountable for their personal sins. 
So the legacy of Elah. Here, Elah and all of Bash's line is now eliminated as spoken in the prophecy, right? Verses 1 through 4 that we just covered. And we have a situation in verse 9 where Elah drinks himself drunk. The Bible doesn't use politically correct terms. I like that. Just give it to me straight. And one of Elah's generals, Zimri, kills him. Now, I do have to digress for a moment in how times have changed. You know, I'm even I kind of looking at this and, okay, it's touching on alcohol and drunkenness. And I remember when I was growing up and I wasn't saved and I remember me and my friends and, and we knew. You know, you always heard about drugs and alcohol. We knew that if we partook, we could be in some instance breaking the law. We realized that we could get hooked or addicted as, as we hear today. We realized that it was wrong and that it led to sinful behavior. It's kind of funny, when I was a kid, we looked at this, and I was a teenager, and my friends, and we knew the rules. Today, things have changed. It's very different today, and I think it's very dangerous. What we start to do is we take the responsibility off of the person. We start calling it a disease, we start coddling people, and I think it's very dangerous because, number one, we're putting them in an unsteady place with God. They need to, listen... We've loved people in this church, people, addicts, they come in and out. We've sent people away. But at the same time, you have to balance that with telling them the truth of what, that what they're doing is sinful. It's sinful behavior. When we start to take that out of it, we're putting them on an unstable footing when it comes to them and their God. Yes, we help them. Yes, we love them. Yes, we encourage them. But we also have to express to them what this is. Right? And it's, it's, not a, it's, not, it's not my fault, it's not somebody else's fault, it's we have to take responsibility um, for what we're doing. Even when I give my testimony of my imbibing in alcohol, sometimes it's a little embarrassing to me and I'm not sure how I should phrase it. Because I know the truth now, you know? And maybe I give the testimony to say, look, God did it for me, he can do it for anybody. Um, so that's the encouraging part of it. Um, when we think about, too, if I put on my law enforcement hat, if the, the husband or the father is the one who's the drunkard or the drug user, what happens is, you know, in law enforcement, you see the destruction on the family, on the wife, on the kids, and the, the, the mental and physical abuse, loss of home, property, divorce, and a whole host of other issues. But sometimes in our society, we take it off the, the true victims and we put it on the person who's doing the victimizing. It's funny, when you look at the victim-victimizer relationship, it's a very fine line. You know, some people can be victims and then later can become victimizers. So I like to use new creature in Christ. I like to use it can get better. God can do a great work in you. So I just wanted to kind of go on a little tangent with that for a minute. I mean, we, we're living in a society where even church people don't take this well because Isaiah 5.20 says there'll be a time, and it's our generation, yes, it was in Isaiah's time, where good... God, good, is looked at as evil. And, and bad, wrong, sinful is looked at as good. We, we, it's, people growing up today, I tell you, teenagers, young people, they're confused. They don't know which way to go because every five years, psychology and the media and the world is telling them something different. They don't know which way is up. Uh, and it's, it's a sad state of affairs. But we have to toe the line in the church and tell the truth, regardless of who gets offended by it. So here in this situation, the king gets drunk and Zimri sees an opportunity, right? He sees him as maybe weak, he sees him as vulnerable, he sees him as unfit, and he takes his life. Now, I'm not excusing Zimri's behavior because one sin opened the door for another sin. And Zimri's sin was the worst sin because he took the man's life, 
Okay? Verse 15. He goes on, In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in Tirzah seven days, only seven days, this guy's reign, they're getting shorter here, and the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now the people who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and also has killed the king. So all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So probably Zimri and Omri served together. The people don't like the fact that Zimri killed the king. And, uh, you know, no national good, good feelings, no good opinion about this. So they say to Omri, hey, you know, let's take out Zimri. <laughs> so, yeah, some of these names are... Then, then Omri and all Israel went with him, with him went up uh, from Gibbethon, and they besieged Tirzah, where Zimri was. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died because of the sins which he had sinned in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the ways of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Israel? Um, you know, we look at this and Jeroboam's name keeps coming up. I mean, quite frankly, imagine if, if that was our name and it's in the Bible and it says, well, this person did wicked and, and you know, he... You know, geez, just as nobody was as bad as Fred, but they, they kind of, you know, and it's, it's kind of a weird thing that Jeroboam was known as the, like the guiding rod of, of how wicked a person could be. And, he, and the, the writer of this, this chronicle is, is taking the current kings and putting them against Jeroboam and saying, yeah, Jeroboam was wicked, but these guys did the same, they did worse. It's kind of scary if you think about it. I mean, who would want to be in that position? But some people don't change. Uh, so the legacy, legacy of Zimri, uh, besieged by Omri, a fellow commander. Zimri is only in office for seven days when this uh, event unfolds. Maybe he should have contacted Reuters or Real Clear Politics and taken a public opinion poll because he goes and kills the king and apparently a lot of people like the king. Bad idea. So now they get the other general to go against him and they besiege where he's at, and they want, they want a piece of him. Uh, and he realizes that he's not taking any chances, so he, he burns the palace down uh, with himself inside of it. A horrible way to die. Um, I don't know, maybe his attitude was, well, if I can't have the gold and all that stuff, I'm going to make it hard for anybody else. And some people, to their last breath, they just think in a twisted fashion. So he takes his life. He doesn't want to deal with the consequences. Um, let me just say this again. Here's another little, I know it's Wednesday night, where it's theology night, it's doctrine night, but this is interesting because a lot of times the scripture prophesies a death or a murder or treason and then time passes and that actual person does it. Um, it doesn't make them exempt from that sin. Remember, the prophecy just foretells these events that are going to happen. God doesn't make people commit sinful behavior. You've got to watch doctrine. Some people will twist you with doctrine. I'll give you a good example. Jesus spoke about Judas as a traitor. He said it would be better for that man not to ever have been born. But he also said that it was prophesied by, by Judas's hand, Jesus would be betrayed. Does that make Judas a victim? No, it doesn't. Judas had a choice. God understood and knew that choice. He chronicled that choice beforehand, and Judas fulfilled it. 
Okay, so you've got to be careful with this stuff. Um, that person must suffer the consequences of that sinful choice, right? Now, again, the prophecy did not make the person do the act. It just recorded it. Judas wasn't a victim, nor were any of these kings. They could have at any point stopped, repented, like many have done. Many have done even today. That is, if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you've seen deathbed conversions. Somebody was just a scoundrel their whole life, and genuinely on, on their last, you know, they're, they're dying in the hospital, and they give their life to the Lord. God is a merciful God. Everybody could do that, but a lot of people just, you know, they just stay in that state until their last breath. Um, I know I don't want that to be me. So, <laughs> um, and, and I'm looking at this, and I'm just wondering, just put yourself in their shoes. You're the fourth or fifth king down the line. You've seen what happens to all your predecessors. They're evil. They're wicked, right? They do terrible things. They're either killed. It's treason. It's murder. It's suicide. It's whatever the case may be. At one point, do you say, you know what? I want to break the cycle here, right? And if I could bring that to today, sometimes we even look at that in our own families. We might be um, you or I. We might be that first-generation Christian in a long line of of our family line. And we, and we want to break that cycle. We turn to the Lord, and it's, an, it's a marvelous thing, isn't it? Right? But here, these guys, they just kept fell, uh, you know, falling in the other knucklehead's footsteps. And, and I think sometimes this is also a very powerful witnessing tool when someone comes to you as a believer. And we don't have it all together. We're not perfect. But maybe they have a very messy life. And you want to introduce the Lord to them. You want to introduce them to a, a way that they can have an alternative, that they can have freedom, that they can have joy and peace, right? So it can, it can become a very powerful witnessing tool to find somebody who just keeps following in these horrible footsteps and dysfunction of their family and this and that. And you say, wait, 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 there's a way out. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And some, they want you to give them advice, but they don't want you to talk about God. You ever experienced that? <laughs> you know? It's like everything is falling apart around them and, well, I don't want to talk about God and they get irritated with you. But no, you don't understand. He's the answer. He's the solution. You can't ask me to make you feel better. It's only going to be temporary. I have to tell you about what the alternative is. And, and I'll tell you what, even at funerals, I've preached the gospel. I always give the gospel at funerals. And some feel it's inappropriate. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Somebody is in, a, in the box. They're dead. It's over. They don't get a do-over. And you don't want me to give everyone else the hope that can bring us all to a place of, of everlasting life? And, and, and I'll tell you, it's, it's amazing. Life sometimes can be a comedy of errors, and sometimes I sit back and go, maybe I'm the crazy one, you know what I'm saying? You know, it's, it's just the world wants this, 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 this craziness to continue, and they don't want something to stop to break the dysfunction. So if you've been a Christian for a while, I know you've experienced it. I know I have. Verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri, another schism. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died and Omri reigned. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. And he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. A pretty good deal back then. And then he built on the hill, and he called the name of the city which he built Samaria. Right? Hence the Samaritans. After the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. Omri did evil 
in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. It's like a competition here. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and the might that he showed, it's amazing. The might. These guys had power. Some of them were great military leaders, but they were wicked. And, and lest you think that sometimes we'll say, oh, what a stupid person. Remember, this is a line of monarchs. A lot of times the monarchs were well-educated. They, they could learn other language. They had opportunities that the peasants didn't have. So getting somebody out of evil and into salvation is not a question of someone's stupid or someone's smart, someone's educated or someone's not. Not true. Sometimes the person who has nothing is the one that's, that's easily led to the Lord because they don't have anything in this world. You know, I think of the Dalits or the untouchables in India, the lowest ones in the caste system. Yes, in 2016, in countries still look at certain people as, as if they're, they're bugs, they're insects. And these Dalits are coming to Christ in incredible numbers, according to missionaries in India. They don't have anything in this world. They're not allowed to get educated. They're not allowed to rise up above. They're held down. Talk about racism. But they're coming to Christ. They want, they want everlasting life because they know they have nothing here. So sometimes it's harder to reach the person who's very highly educated, very wealthy, because they can fall back on that in this world. It's kind of sad if you think about it. So the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. Ahab and his wife, they were some bad people. But let's start with Omri, or continue. Omri uh, is, has this competition for the king's seat. Now, a bunch of people get behind this guy, Tibni, and sin, sin always brings division. Uh, Omri didn't break the cycle. Um, some said, oh, we don't like Omri. Let's, let's put our lot behind Tibni. Well, the Tibni followers ended up losing. Tibni dies. They don't say how, but he probably was executed. That's the way it was done back then. Uh, but Omri didn't learn from anyone else before him because it said he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and it, he was worse than all those that went before him. Again, it was like a competition. Who could be the nastiest? Who could be the most wicked? Very sad because this is now 3,000 years later. Where are they? <laughs> They're not in a good place. It's a long place to be there, and eternity is, is a lot longer than the last 3,000 years. Think about that. Put that in perspective. This is why we have to have a heart for the lost. They can get mad at us. They can assault us. They can spit on us. They could defraud us. But there are souls, and once they leave this world and step into eternity, there's no changing their fate. Consider that, brothers and sisters. Consider that when God calls you by His Spirit and wants to use you in somebody's life. It's so important. Now, the caveat to that is sometimes we want it more than that person. And I've seen that too in ministry. You want it so much more for this person, for them to get well, for them to get off of addictions, for them to get out of their situation, for them to come to the Lord, and, and you seem to want it more than them. And that can be heartbreaking too. But continue on. Verse 29 last few verses. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. 
Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It's like compounding interest. You know, so the newest person, he's worse than all the ones before, and then the one after him, and man, it's just a lot of wickedness. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel. Uh, if you don't even know the Bible that well, you've heard the name Jezebel before, so we're going to learn about her too. In addition to Ahab and Elijah, it gets very interesting in these next few chapters. Uh, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Baal would be that false god. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he, made, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations with Abiram. Now in the Hebrew, that can mean, or that means, he laid its foundation at the cost of the life of Abiram, his firstborn. I'm going to get to that. And with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Last few verses. Now Omri, he has a son, Ahab, and Ahab does evil in the sight of the Lord. And verse 30 says, Ahab was a really bad guy, if you know your Bible. Um, He did a lot worse than anybody else that was before him. Um, It's pretty sad. And I have have to say that uh, you can see the depths that that rulership brings a person. I mean, we can look at North Korea, we can look at some of these countries, but we could also look at our country. And there's some people that are ruling us in office that um, they're in there for the long haul. I mean, they're, they've been in there for decades serving, supposedly serving. Um, they're addicted to the power. They don't really care about their constituents. They'll lie and say whatever they have to say in order to be reelected. Next, I mean, you, you've really sold your soul to the dark side to do stuff like that. Um, but just the, just no godliness in their lives and some good people in office, but a lot of them, especially the higher you go and the more deals and the kickbacks and stuff they take, they're very well taken care of once they leave office, if they even leave office. Um, so that's what we have. So verse 31, Ahab marries a pagan woman who pretty much ruled the home and the kingdom. Uh, and we'll find too that Jezebel does things that the average queen couldn't do. She's a very determined, very strong, but a very wicked woman. Uh, and we're going to see that, you know, you don't normally see when the queen did this and the queen did that back then, but we're going to see that Jezebel did some things and she killed a lot of people, and we're going to cover that in the next chapter, but um, she was so evil. You're supposed to say, how evil was she? <laughs> that was a good response for a Wednesday night. <laughs> She was so evil that Jesus refers to her evil and wickedness in Revelation 2. So fast forward all these years later, Jesus is talking about her. You know what I'm saying? You're pretty bad if that's the case. But Ahab was wicked, and he was a weak man, and he allowed his wife to pretty much rule him in the kingdom. Pretty sad. You know, she, you, know you can see, you know, I, listen, I picked on husbands, I'll pick on wives. You can even see that today. You know, this guy's a nice guy, he's docile, and this woman he's married to, she's just, she's the controlling seat of the whole family, and and it's obvious. (laughs) So, now let's contrast that with Nabal, who was a fool, who was a weak man. Think about this. He had a wife as well, but his wife was very strong, very determined, but a very godly woman, and her name was Abigail. (laughs) 
So remember Abigail. Abigail not only disregards her husband, she ends up by disregarding his, his stupid idea to tick off David. She ends up saving his life. It wasn't really worth saving, but you know, she was a very virtuous and very awesome lady. Um, she, she has this quick plan to stop David from coming and just laying waste to the village. She goes out to him. She gets her servants. She brings you know, gifts. Her words are very fine, and, and she's a very smart lady. She not only saves the life of her foolish husband, but she saved the life of her community. So look up Abigail when you get a chance. She's like the, the nemesis to Jezebel. All right, You see that contrast. Jezebel brings in this demonic idolatry from her homeland into Israel. Ahab has no problem with it. However, God uses Elijah as a thorn in her side. <laughs> so God did an awesome thing where he brought somebody in there to really counterbalance what was going on in the, the royal palace. And we'll get to him in the next chapter. Verse 34 the reason why I went into another translation of the Hebrew is because, so this guy Heel is a builder, and Ahab sends him to build, rebuild Jericho, but in Joshua 6.26, there was a curse, and he said, let no one, on the penalty of death, rebuild, uh, not Jerusalem, Jericho. So Heel ends up, and him and Ahab, you know, he says, yeah, sure, I'll build it. Ahab sends him to do it. He suffers the consequence and the loss of his son as a result of it. Um, and Ahab had no problem defying God, and I'm sure his wife was in on it. But notice in chapters 15 and 16 that King Asa outlasted five wicked kings in the north from Nadab through Omri and part of the reign of, of Ahab. Okay? So let's just leave off with this. Bad legacies. What is the defini definition of legacy? Legacy has a lot of definitions, but one of them is something handed down by a predecessor. What did these kings hand down? Number one. They, they handed down a bad example to their children. And a lot of times, the blood of their children was on their own hands. Very sad. Very, very sad. And I see sometimes today, you know, people in the world, parents that do bad things themselves, but then they affect their children. And that's really an, an angering thing and a hard thing to watch. You want to hurt yourself? Go ahead and do it. Don't bring your kids into this. And I got to tell you, if, if that's anybody here and you're a Christian now, that's covered under the blood. It's not for anybody to feel guilty. I'm just going with the, the parallel here in this, in this story. Now, with us um, as believers, let's say, let's say we, we were in the world and our kids are now 16 or 15 or whatever the case may be. You know what? Now we start doing, we become Christians, now we start doing it right, try to make up for that lost time and ask the Lord to cover those years. But these guys didn't care. To their last breath, till their kids became adults and they became the kings, the cycle of dysfunction continued, right? And, and again, how did we make that application to the world? It's all around us, but let it not be us. Two, the fact that most people, um, even many Christians, and I put this on the Facebook wall, I always put out a teaser, like a trailer of what we're going to talk about, and I encourage the other pastors and elders to do the same thing. Um, before I do a message, I kind of give out a little teaser of what it's going to be about. And I put these names in there. I put Nadab and Elah and Zimri and Abri. And I said, does anybody recognize these names? Even Christians a lot of times, oh, maybe I heard of one of those. Oh, Ahab, yeah, yeah, I heard of him. Wasn't his wife Jezebel, you know. But for the most part, people don't know these names because they left a crummy legacy. I'd, you know, but you ask a Christian, who's David? Everybody knows who David is. Who's Abraham? They know who Abraham is. Zimri, Elah, Amri. Man, they're gone 3,000 years, and those people don't know what the heck they did. 
But again, what about us? What's our legacy? Again, we don't necessarily need a college wing named after us. If, if they do and they want to you know, Google us and find out that we were strong Christians, great. But do we necessarily need that? No. What we need to do is we need to um, inspire people with the love of God, and, and it's got to come from us and within us first. So some people say, well, why make the comparison to us? No. We, we didn't have such heavy responsibility as theirs, and no. Most of us hearing this are probably not wicked people, but we still have a responsibility. And we still set examples to those around us. And our words and actions do affect people around us, whether we realize it or not. Okay? I mean, I've had people come to me. Um, well, it was kind of a funny story. In the church before we were here, uh, my sister, she was doing missions trips, and she came into the church like lobby and I gave her a big hug. And she's two years younger than me. She's pretty. And some people are like, you're married. Like, I heard this. Somebody said, who's that girl? I'm like, it's my sister. Well, give me a break, for heaven's sake. But um, people are watching. They watch what we do. Uh, I'm not going to stop hugging my sister. I'd rather explain it afterwards. But you, you get the point. And, and I would just say this. People are watching us. And they're watching our li- living legacies. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.